Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We are studying verse by verse, one chapter a week through the book of Daniel. There's no one like God. He is sovereign and the kings of the world are not. So far we have seen Daniel and his three friends courageously stand on their convictions. Remember in chapter one, they refused to eat of the king's table. And last Sunday in chapter two, we saw Daniel boldly interpret Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream, even though it was negative against him. And just to remind you of the content of that dream, remember Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream a great statue and it was made of various materials, starting with the head, which was made of pure gold and then the shoulders and the arms of silver. And the midsection of the body of the statue was bronze. The legs were of iron and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And David, excuse me, Daniel said uh, to the king, really this is the interpretation the dream is a metaphor. It's symbolic of what's going to happen in the future. Babylon is the head of gold and they're going to become a succession of lesser empires after Babylon's reign is over. And uh, that happened. The Medo-Persians, the silver uh, arms took the place of Babylon and then the Greeks followed shortly thereafter. And then the Romans had a 500 year reign in their empire, but they're still the feet and that empire is still yet to come, even from our perspective. But the most important part of the vision was the stone that Daniel saw, which the Bible said was not touched by human hands. That is, this is an act of a sovereign God, not something any man could do. And that stone passed through, I guess, like a meteor, and it crashed into the feet of this great statue and obliterated it, just dashed it to dust. And Daniel says, this is the final kingdom. It is the kingdom of God that he will establish and this kingdom will have no end. It is an eternal kingdom. And we know given the New Testament that Jesus Christ is that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he has established his kingdom into the hearts and minds of believers. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. Now, what was Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the dream's interpretation that his kingdom was only temporary. Now look at verse 46 back in chapter two. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he seems happy at first and he proclaims that God is the only true God. He gives Daniel a promotion, makes him high up in his government. Of course, Daniel didn't forget about his three friends and uh, they got great jobs in the government as well. But we see today right away in chapter three that Nebuchadnezzar's newfound humility was very short lived. <laughs> in fact, the first point in your outline is the narcissistic king. Let's read the first seven verses, chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations of men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately, and that means in the same day, be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. May the Lord bless the hearing of his red word. The narcissistic king, you might remember the character from Greek mythology named Narcissus, from which we get the word narcissism. He was said to be uh, the most handsome man that ever lived. He was a great hunter. And one day he's out chasing some game in the woods and he became very thirsty and he found a pool of water and he knelt down to drink from the pool and he saw his own reflection and fell in love. Couldn't imagine anything more beautiful. And he died in sadness because he knew he could never find a partner as beautiful as he. Reminds me of a football player we had here in Dallas a few years ago, and he was known for his ego. And when he was asked about it, he says, well, it's this simple. I love me some me. And Nebuchadnezzar loved himself some Nebuchadnezzar. And though at times he seemed to have humility, he kept going back to his narcissistic ways. It's pretty narcissistic to build a statue that's 90 feet tall out on the plains of Dura. And I take it it's a statue of himself. At least it's certainly a statue representing his empire. And I think it, it represents a few things. Number one, I think it's an attempt to usurp the prophecy of chapter two. Daniel said, in your dream, you saw this great statue and it was destroyed. And I think Nebuchadnezzar, after he had some time to think about it, said, we'll see about that. And he builds this statue. And, and then I think it's also a display of the vastness of his empire and his wealth. And it's really an attempt to unify the various nations under his control that he had defeated. See, it was not just Israel that he had defeated and brought captives into and reprogrammed them. He had done this for a number of different nations. And here you have them living in this strange land. They're all trying to learn to get along. And he wants all of them to think like Babylonians and cease to think about their citizenry wherever they came from. And so he says, if I can get them to worship the same God, then we have something going. But look at verse seven. It says, therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, the peoples, plural, nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image. And so here they are, all of them worshiping the same God. It seems to be a political maneuver. But I think ultimately, though, it's a test of fidelity and loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar as king. So it's a simple law. You either obey it and you're a friend of Nebuchadnezzar's, you disobey it and you're his enemy. And so that brings us to the reaction of the steadfast servants. That of course being Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Look at verse eight here in chapter three. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. These are his representatives from Babylon and brought charges against the Jews. So a law had been passed if you don't bow down when you hear the music to the statue, you have to be killed. And so they're bringing legal charges against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And so they're really making this as personal as possible. This is an affront unto Nebuchadnezzar and his sovereignty. The title of the message this morning is The Freedom of a Made-Up Mind. I take that title from verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1. It says that Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's food or his wine. But it was not just Daniel, obviously, that had those kind of convictions. His three friends did as well. And they had made up their mind. There were certain things they would not do and they would do in the name of the Lord. And so uh, a question I have when I read this text is, well, where's Daniel in all of this? He's nowhere to be seen here in chapter three. Well, the, the answer is, I don't know. And no one else does. There's a lot of theories out there. And the most popular theories among evangelicals is Daniel was elevated so high into a position that he represented the king internationally and he'd been sent out of country on some mission. That may very well be true. The Bible doesn't say that. It, it's silent. And so I don't think we should go by past what the Bible says. I certainly don't think Daniel bowed down to the idol. He's just not mentioned here. But there is great freedom in having a made up mind. Here's what I mean. Our culture, our society tells us constantly, doesn't it, that what we should value the most is an open mind. Now, the problem with that is our culture has become so open-minded that our collective brains have fallen out. <laughs> and I want you young people to hear this specifically. There are certain things about which you need to close your mind off forever and to keep them closed. Things like Job said in Job chapter 31, he said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a young woman. I know many a man in our community who's addicted to pornography who wish they had made that covenant with their eyes and had that sort of conviction. When I was in high school, I was introduced to the writings of a great man named Jonathan Edwards. He's a great Puritan pastor who lived and ministered in the early 1700s in this country. He had a brilliant mind. And even as a teenager, he decided to make up his mind about how he was going to live the remainder of his life. You see, the, the average life expectancy for a male in the 1700s in North America was about 45 years. And so when he got to be 18, he realized he was a middle-aged man. And so he began thinking about the rest of his life. And so he took pen and paper and he began to write down resolutions. A lot of us make resolutions for New Year's. He made 70 resolutions that he lived by the rest of his life. Can I read a few of them to you? Here's the first one, resolved. I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory. That's his very first resolution. All the others fall in line under that one. He said, resolved to do whatever I understand to be my duty and will provide the most good and benefit to mankind in general. Then he says this, resolved if ever and whenever I fail and fall and grow weary and dull and to neglect in keeping part of the resolutions, I will repent. Resolution four, resolve never to do anything, whether physically or spiritually, except what glorifies God. Resolution five, never to lose one moment of time 
but seize the time to use it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution six, to live with all my might while I do live. Then I think resolution seven is his best one. Never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I knew it were my last day on earth. He was 18 years old when he wrote these and he determined to read over them at least once a week for the rest of his life. Now, why did Jonathan Edwards make these 70 resolutions? I believe it was because Edwards understood that life was short and that one day he would give an account to Almighty God. And so he didn't want to waste any of his life, not even one hour of it, in trying to determine what he would or wouldn't do in the heat of the moment. And so he made up his mind in a calm setting about what he would do when faced with certain things in life when he became adult. Now, there are many things in life, I know, that aren't as clear as Edward's resolutions. In fact, we saw one of those things last week in chapter two. There was a crisis moment in the land. The king said, if one of you conjurers, one of you wise men doesn't interpret the dream, all of you are going to be put to death. That was a crisis. And Daniel said to Ariok, the king's man, put in charge of carrying out this incredible law, give me some time. I need to think about this. More importantly, I need to gather my prayer partners together. We need to pray through this. And what they were praying for is James 1, 5, wisdom. God's promised to give it when we pray. And so there are certain things that the Bible is not, by the way, a reference manual for every possible scenario of life. You say, well, uh, who should I marry? Well, let me look in 1 Corinthians 2. That, that's not how it works. There are principles there. But on the other hand, there are certain things that are so clear in the Bible we can't even miss it. In fact, I would say it this way. There are certain circumstances and decisions that we don't need to pray about. Kids, you don't have to pray whether or not it's God's will for you to rob the bank to pay your college tuition for the fall. The Bible says thou shalt not steal. Husbands and wives, you don't have to wonder if it's God's will for you to be unfaithful to your spouse. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. And it was just as clear in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that the very first commandment God gave his people was to have no other gods before them and not to make any graven images. And they weren't about to violate the first and the second commandments by bowing down to this idol. And so what they did is they made up their mind beforehand to obey the clear instruction of God when the crisis moment came. So the crisis moment came. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, their boss said, if you don't bow down and worship the statue, I'm going to have to throw you into the fiery furnace. Now I take from that, that he had some affection and regard for these boys, likely because of their relationship to Daniel, one of his most trusted advisors. And, and he thought, well, look, I'm gonna give you a second chance. Maybe you misunderstood what I said. You're embarrassing me. Next time you hear the music, you bow down and we'll forget all about this. And their answer surprised him. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer. Remember, Daniel said, give me some time. They said, we don't need any time. <laughs> we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Verse 17, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. May their tribe increase. 
Remember when we started this pandemic three months ago, I stood in this pulpit and you watched it online. And I said, we're going to suspend ministries here at the church in person because we want to be good citizens. And Paul said in the book of Romans that we ought to be good citizens. We ought to pray for those in authority and we ought to obey the law of the land. But I said then with two notable exceptions, we need to obey the government until and when they forbid us from doing what God commands or they command us to do what God forbids. And here is that second case. They were commanded to do what God forbids. That is to bow down to a false God. And so even though they, I'm sure, were some of the best ambassadors that he had in his administration, that's why I didn't want to kill them. That's why I gave them a second chance. They were good employees. But they were determined to obey God rather than the king. Well, let's come now to verse 19. The third point is the wonderful Savior. Lest we forget, Christians, this is God's story, isn't it? He is the hero of it, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and here's a story of some young men who were willing to lose everything to obey the Lord. And they did. But just so you know, remember this, when we make up our mind to obey God, not everyone is going to like it. Not everyone's going to appreciate it. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and the facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. That's how mad he was. He didn't want to take any chances to have any possibility that they wouldn't die. And it was so hot that these valiant warriors who escorted them and tied them up and were to throw them in the furnace died instantly from the heat. And by the way, this isn't a metaphor. I've heard a lot of sermons and read a lot of sermons. The fiery furnace is a metaphor. What's your fiery furnace? This isn't a metaphor. This is historical narrative. This actually happened. And they tied them up and they threw them in. The men that tied them up died. That's how hot it was. And, and then what happens? Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar, the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men? we cast bound into the midst of the fire. And they replied to the king, oh, certainly king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And their appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. When you choose to obey God, you make up your mind to do so. Not everyone's going to like it. In fact, it's going to make a lot of people angry. And then secondly, when you make up your mind to obey God, it might cost you everything. These young men had no assurance that God was going to save them. Look how they said it. He's able to. And by the way, they believed he would. They had faith, but they knew God had not obligated himself to anything. If he did save them, it was because of his mercy. And so he says, if he chooses not to in his sovereignty, which he had the right to do, we're not going to bow down to your gods. We're still going to worship him. And there have been many cases in the Bible and in Christian history of people just as faithful as these three boys who God chose not to spare. We see that in the book of Acts when Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel. We know that 11 of the 12 apostles were put to death for the sake of Christ. We believe the apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome and history tells us the apostle Peter was crucified upside down. They were faithful. They were God's men for their moment, yet God chose not to spare them. 
Thirdly, when you make up your mind to obey God, this is most important. He will help you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. He didn't say he won't have you suffer. Didn't say he won't even allow you to be killed. He says, I will help you. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. He helped them in that context. What about the New Testament? I'm so glad you asked. In Ephesians chapter six, the apostle Paul says, God has given us everything we need to not only survive this life, but to be victorious in it. He commands us to put on the whole armor, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he's given to us that one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Speaking of the spirit, he has caused his Holy Spirit to take up residence in the life of every believer. And Jesus was telling his disciples and predicting the spirit would come. He says, when he comes, he will guide you to all truth. In fact, the scripture says that, that it's good for these crisis moments where you don't know if by following the Lord, your life may be taken. He said, don't worry about it. When the time comes, the spirit will tell you what to say. They didn't have to have prepared speeches. God gave them what to say in the moment. And beyond the whole armor and the spirit and his word, he's given all of us one another, hasn't he? We have a wonderful local church. I think many of us have become much more aware how important it is these last three months to have others in our lives to help bear our burdens and to encourage us in the word and in our work. Shadrach had Meshach. Meshach had Abednego and they all three had Daniel. God gives us other believers in our lives to encourage our faith. But I think the most important thing that God gives us is the assurance of his very presence. I've often said at funerals that I think the most important conviction that any person can have is that God is with them. The most famous verse and the most famous chapter in the Old Testament David wrote these words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. That was the conviction of his heart. Deuteronomy 31, 6, I will never leave you or forsake you. Romans 8, Paul put it this way, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing is the answer. And so Nebuchadnezzar jumps out of his seat because he sees these boys no longer tied up, walking around freely, loosed from their bonds, there's not just those three, there's one more. And the fourth, he says, is likened to a son of God. Now, who is this fourth figure? Well, theologians love to debate this. A lot of ink has been spilled over this question. A lot of evangelicals believe that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Christ. We call that a Christophany in theological terms. And Again, the Bible doesn't say there. I, I'm, I'm careful about going past what the Bible says. Here's what we do know. God miraculously saved their lives. He sent a helper. Nebuchadnezzar calls him an angel. Whoever it is, he saved them. And it was God who saved them. And God is the hero of this story. God doesn't always elect to do that so miraculously, but he always can do that. The result of that, friends, is why I titled this message, The Freedom of a Made-Up Mind. There is incredible freedom of a Christian in knowing this fact, that you will never die in God's service unless he says it's time for you to die. 
You will never die in God's service until he says it's time. And so we don't have to live in fear. And that gives our missionaries freedom to go to some very difficult and dark places in the world. And it also gives their parents at home freedom who are concerned about their children and grandchildren. Now, don't hear me saying that, that we ought to be foolish and tempt God. Satan tried to tempt Jesus and said, jump off of this building and God will save you. We're not to tempt the Lord our God. What I mean by that is I believe in the sovereignty of God and I believe I won't die until God says it's time, but I put my seatbelt on when I get in my truck. I lock my doors before I go to bed at night. And so don't be judgmental about others who take precautions that you don't in life. Doesn't mean they don't trust God as much as you do. But we can all rest our head easily on the pillow at night when we understand and know that nothing happens in this life that God doesn't either allow or cause. Gives us incredible freedom and incredible peace. See, Christianity is awfully good for living, but it's even better for dying. I had a man in my office this week, first time I ever met him, he's new to the community. He's dying of cancer and he said so very clearly. He was diagnosed several years ago with oral cancer. The doctor told him that if he was fortunate, he would live to December of 2017. And he's lived nearly three years longer. But in the last two months, he's become unable to swallow. He hasn't had food in eight weeks. He's lost a lot of weight. His clothes are hanging off. He apologized for that. But if there's ever a man that I've ever met who was at peace, it was this man. He says, Pastor, I look at it like this. I've been given 31 extra months. And he says, to the best of my ability, I've witnessed to every hospice nurse in North Texas in that 31 months. And he said that as matter of factly as he talked about the weather. He was at perfect peace because he understood there is freedom in a made up mind. Now, do you believe God could heal him of cancer? I do. But even if he doesn't, this man's going to serve the Lord with whatever time he has. This was the conviction of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it led to a clear testimony. And the source of that testimony might surprise you. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I think when Nebuchadnezzar saw these three men alive and the fourth man walking in their midst, he remembered something that Daniel had said to him when he interpreted his dream. Remember what Daniel said? He said, King, you've exhausted every resource you have. You've challenged every wise man and sorcerer and magician to interpret your dream and None of them could do it, but there is a God in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw that fourth man, was reminded that there is a God in heaven who's greater than me, and he's greater than any of my gods, and at least temporarily, as we'll see in the rest of the book, 
Nebuchadnezzar admits that Jehovah is better. Now, how can we apply this? I, I know these words were written 2,600 years ago, and we live in a much more advanced and sophisticated society, so we think. I, I don't know how any Christian living today could find any application to strangers living in a strange land, surrounded by egotistical politicians, surrounded by their enemies who are trying to manipulate the legal system to silence their voice in the public square. How could we ever relate to that? But I think if we squint real hard and turn our heads sideways, we might be able to see something here. A couple of applications. One is like these three boys, we need to make up our mind about some things. Now, they were serving the Lord not to win his favor. They were working not to be saved because they were saved. And that's how we work, isn't it? Scripture says, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. James says, faith without works is dead. The reason we're willing to die for the gospel is not so that we can impress God and that he will love us. We're willing to die for the gospel because he chose us before the foundation of the world and that we are his, and he has saved us and redeemed us in our eternity is certain. And just as these three boys were ambassadors for the king, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. On our sports teams, at our place of business, in our civic organizations, wherever we go, and we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul says he was not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all that who, who would believe. And just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Jonathan Edwards, we ought to live our lives so that he receives the most glory, whether we live or whether we die. So he doesn't want us paralyzed by fear of death. You saw it on the screen right before we sang victory in Jesus. Death, where's your victory? Because the victory is in Jesus and what he did on the cross and through his glorious resurrection. So make up your mind, believer, in the calm of this moment and in the quietness of this room before you go out to work Monday morning and you're in the heat of battle. You don't have to make up your mind in the heat of battle when it's made up today. And let me speak specifically to young people, teenagers. I say this to my own kids often. Outside of following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the most important decision you'll ever make is who you marry. And so you better get it right because it will have implications for the rest of your life and for your children's children. I know this text doesn't mention marriage, but there is application. Christian young person, you need to decide today that you're gonna marry a believer. And not just a believer, but a strong believer. And one that's going hard after the things that you're going after, the things of God. And you need to make a renown, you're not gonna waver from the right or to the left, and you're not going to be like Narcissus who falls in love with a beautiful image. Make up your mind today what kind of marriage partner you're looking for. Make up your mind in other areas of your life. And I'm not going to tell you what all they are. Every life is different. Determine now that there's going to be some lines you will not cross. Some things that you know today you will never do and some things you know you will always do. You will never regret obeying the clear teaching of Scripture. 
Dr. Adrian Rogers was a great pastor. He's with the Lord. I heard him preach many times. And on a number of occasions, he closed his sermon this way. He said, listen, come close and listen. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to Jesus. He had no regrets for following the Lord from his youth. And I would say the same thing to every young person in this room. Give your best years to Jesus. Follow him. Stand upon your convictions courageously. He doesn't promise to give you an easy life. Doesn't promise to give you a comfortable life. Doesn't even promise to give you a long life. But he says, when you stand before him, you'll hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray that every member of our church hears that sentence one day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this, your word. And it's a challenging word, Lord. It's a convicting word. It's also encouraging. These men were not mythological figures. They were flesh and blood people. They were given no assurances that they wouldn't die for the sake of your name. They were willing to lose it all because they had made up their mind, even in their youth, that there were certain things they would not do. So Father, when your scripture is clear, help us to obey it. And Father, when there's a question about what your will is, help us to be prayerful. And we're thankful that we have so much help in making those decisions. We have the whole armor, we have your word, we have our local church to give us counsel. We have your assurance that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We have your indwelling spirit. So Father, I pray that we would all determine today to live our lives according to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that we'll trust in you with all of our heart. We won't depend upon ourselves or our culture and that we'll rest on your promise that you'll guide our paths. Father, guide the paths of our church as we have important decisions to make in days ahead concerning our future. We trust you'll do that. We know you're a merciful and kind and long-suffering God. We call on you for wisdom. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up from our teenagers here, bold men and women who live their lives for your glory. And when that happens, Lord, we'll give you the praise, honor, and thanksgiving in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.